Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is December 19th, 2012, and my guest is Morton Jervin of Simon Fraser University and the author of Poor Numbers, How We Are Misled by African Development Statistics and What to Do About It, which will be published this spring. Morton, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you very much, Russ. Before we begin, I want to mention this is scheduled to be the first release of 2013, which means that 2012 is over by the time you hear this. And I'd like to get some feedback from you out there in the listening audience. Please send me an email listing your three favorite episodes of Econ Talk for 2012. You can find all the 2012 episodes, as well as all of our previous episodes, going back to 2006 at econtalk.org. Just look at the menu on the left-hand side of the page, and you'll see the archive there, organized by date, category, or featured guest. So look up 2012's uh, podcasts. And send me an email at mail at econtalk.org. And in the subject line, say favorites. And uh, give me your three favorites, and I'll talk about them on air, I hope. And I'll tweet on them at econtalker, which is my um, Twitter name. Now for today's guest, Morton Jervin. Morton, your book is a fascinating and, I have to say, somewhat depressing look at the quality of data in national income accounting and other areas of uh, data collection at the national level but particularly in Africa, which is the focus of your book, what's the main problem with calculating GDP or growth rates in Africa? Why is that uh, so difficult? And why has it been so so uh, uh, inaccurate? Well, the main problem uh, when compiling GDP estimates at the statistical offices in most African economies is that of uh, data availability. And these... Uh, departments who are putting together the national accounts which produces the GDP estimates have uh, very little information about the economy they are supposed to uh, create a measure of. Um, and uh, in particular, um, uh, they may have very little information about food production. They may have more information about export crops. They know a little bit about some manufacturing some of the larger uh, operators, uh, they know about government activities, but there are huge gaps in the information relating to what we call the informal sector or the unrecorded economy. And moreover, this problem of reaching a, a, a reliable or valid GDP estimates is not... Uh, varies considerably from country to country, and it also varies considerably across time. Some countries have uh, very little data, some countries have more data, um, and uh, if you look through uh, history as well, this problem has varied with intensity uh, since the 1950s. And that's basically what my book is about, to try to map uh, how serious these errors are and, uh, and uh, how they vary and uh, what to do about it. And these are data that are being used typically, I mean, they're used for all kinds of reasons. They're used for trying to determine how much aid to give. They're measures of internal value to the country. But they're often used by economists in the development field to assess whether certain policies are working or not working or whether certain nations or at least making progress or not making progress. And when you say they differ, these, these estimates vary by time and space, meaning across country and even within a country across time. Uh, that's very disturbing for the people who are running sophisticated statistical models trying to assess the effectiveness of various policies, right? That's right. So let me just talk through a couple of examples or, or debates where um, GDP statistics are particularly important. One is, uh, for instance, uh, whether a country is ranked as a poor or a middle-income poor country, according to the World Bank. If it is ranked as a poor country, such as uh, Tanzania and, and, and uh, 
and Kenya are, then it's eligible for concessional lending through the IDA, the, the concessional lending arm of the World Bank. If it is a middle-income country, it is not uh, eligible for that, that kind of, of lending. Uh, and, and to take a recent example, it was when in, uh, in Ghana, when they redid their uh, GDP estimates, they recently found out that their economy was almost double the size of what they previously thought and previously published, so that uh, suddenly the Ghanaian economy uh, was ranked as a middle-income country and is no longer eligible for concessional lending, whereas other countries which have not updated their uh, uh, GDP statistics, may we, are, we would hesitate to compare, uh, compare Ghana with, with Tanzania or Nigeria or, or Kenya today, and particularly it makes a mockery of, of those kind of rankings when we know, when we recently seen, and as I described in the book, how vulnerable these statistics are. But there are other also, as you referred to, as more sophisticated econometric analysis using this data. And I think perhaps the, you know, the most famous debate for those who have been interested in African economic development for some time is that about whether structural adjustment programs or rather the, the liberalization programs, uh, which was uh, implemented in sub-Saharan African economies, almost without exceptions from the 1980s, 1990s. And then the big debate was whether, you know, this was supposed to spur growth, to make uh, growth recover. And the big debates have always been, you know, uh, try to compare strong reformers to modest reformers, and then try to tease out uh, an average GDP growth effect. Now, when we know how big the 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 underlying unreliability of these data series are, we, we know there is enough uh, uh, um, error in there to, to make uh, these kind of analysis completely, uh, well, not trustworthy. Um, yeah, you, I hear you soften it. Uh, yeah, completely <laughs> meaningless is what you meant to say, but I like yeah. not trustworthy is very polite. I like that. Yeah, and, and, and the third example, I think, which is now one which is resurfacing as one of the, I think, most of the, one of the most important questions uh, for those who are interesting, interested in, in how the poorest of the, in the world are faring at the moment. And that is that of trying to get a, uh, what we refer to as uh, elasticities between these measures. So to what extent is recent growth causing a reduction in poverty, for instance? And uh, when we look at uh, and we look at uh, papers written on that, trying to, to calculate these uh, relationships between recent GDP growth and recent reduction or, or increases in poverty. And these, these uh, models are, are unfortunately way more sophisticated than the underlying databases uh, does allow. And so you're basically you're trying to tease out the effect of liberalization on poverty mm. and using this chain of causation liberalization ideally leads to higher growth which should lead to less poverty but you have your two data says that you're looking at the two observations on on gdp and on poverty are so mismeasured you really don't know what you're getting that's right that's right and there is also i think in the book i try to uh, suggest one distinction between talking about data as valid versus data as reliable. Um, valid, we're then talking about the GDP measure, would be the question whether the GDP estimate is correct. Does it capture the economy 100%? Now we know that a GDP measure of the US economy, the German economy, the Norwegian economy would never be correct. There will always be a little bit of uh, uh, of some data which is uh, there will be some cheating there will be some data which are questionable but we know we are more or less within bounds of what is uh, you know a couple of percentage off here and there and so that would be the question of validity the, as we've seen in from recent events in in Ghana and also forthcoming events in Nigeria the validity question is really huge in 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 uh, in in sub-saharan africa we're talking about uh, uh, plus minus uh, 50 to 100 percent on GDP levels. Um, this would maybe not be a problem 
if you were interested in change, as we were talking about now, what one type of change has a causal effect on, a, on another, such as GDP, uh, liberalization, and, and poverty. The problem is if you have the, the, that the measure, the validity of the measure changes through time. So that would be if you equated this with your bathroom scale at home, it wouldn't be such a big problem if your personal scale was off a pound or two, if you were basically just interested in measuring yourself on a weekly basis to see if you're gaining or losing. The problem comes in is that of reliability, and that is if someone changes your scale in the middle of the night, and, and the, therefore you have a scale which shows a different, have an error in, the, in a different direction. And there you will have serious problems about talking about uh, a time series or change over time. Another problem is, of course, validity does still remain with us, even if the data was reliable, uh, in that if you started comparing your own weight with that of the neighbor who used a different scale, then you would still uh, be very, very, very difficult to determine who's the heaviest or lightest. You know, when you talked about Ghana, I couldn't help thinking of my great-grandmother, who at one point... Her town was in Russia, and then because of some border changes, I think related to World War I, uh, her town was moved, could have been before that, was now she found herself in Poland. Mm. And the joke was, thank, thank God, no more Russian winners. <laughs> and, and I think about that when you think about Ghana. So you're saying they, they wake up, woke up one day, and they found out they were twice as rich as they thought they were. And I guess in one dimension, that's, that's a good thing, um, I suppose. Uh, in another, you'd say, well, it really doesn't matter. It's like the Russian winter joke. You know, it, <laughs> it either, if it snows a lot and it's cold, who cares what you call it? If you have a lot of money and you're living pretty well, who cares whether it's measured as rich or poor? But as you point out, uh, there are a lot of reasons that leaders of nations, particularly, and sometimes citizens, care about how things are measured and classified. And in particular, I would have thought coming into this book, before I read your book, I would have thought, well, one of the problems of GDP measurement in every society, as you talk about in the book, is the informal sector, the underground sector, the non-market sector, the non-monetary, the home sector, as it's called. There's all kinds of things going on that aren't measured, either because they're they're hidden or because they're simply not measured. There's no dollar value can you can put onto them, and you give the classic example in the book of the person marrying uh, his cook. You marry your cook, your cook's a woman, you're a man, you marry your cook. The cook's activity used to be part of GDP, and now it's not, because presumably she's not charging you for the meal she makes at home, at least in a monetary way. Mm -hmm. So I understand that, and I thought, well, okay, so GDP in in Africa is probably underestimated, but it's underestimated by sometimes an enormous amount, which, which is what, what is so surprising. Um, explain why. What are some of the, you mentioned a little bit, but let's go into a little more depth. Why is it that, it's one thing, to, like you say, it's one thing to say, well, we, we, we didn't get it exactly right, but they're not even in the ballpark. And you suggest that sometimes it's incentives that are causing that. What's going on? Well, one, well, what do we, you know, it, it's a nice uh, little anecdote to introduce this question with because one way of thinking about this is it, 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 it's about boundaries or borders. And this we're talking about here is the, you know, what was referred to often as the production boundary to decide what type of economic activity should be included, accounted for, and which should not be included. Uh, and as I, in the book, I'm, uh, I provide a, a, a history of how African economies have been measured from, from colonial times until today. And, and one of the things that is particularly striking is how uh, the, the views on production boundary um, does change uh, uh, through time. Now, so one of the the biggest, uh, one of the reasons why one should, you could start thinking about, okay, maybe one should not include any non-monetary activities or those which are not recorded. Um, 
but that is that would be as you say would be a uh, um would render the GDP estimates completely uh, meaningless because there's so b- big part of the economy which t- takes part in this this sector, and we know it's so economically important. So we need to include it. Another thing, which which is a good argument for why uh, one should try to attempt uh, uh, an exhaustive measure, is that one would get uh, an artificial measure of growth uh, as some economic activity travels from informal into formal activity if you don't have a a proper baseline estimate to begin with. Um, But to to answer that question about why why there is so much economic activity outside the production boundary, um, one of this is, is, uh, you know, you have to look at uh, the structure of African economies. And I made the point... I make the point in the book that this is, of course, not having inaccurate statistics is not, you know, solely an African uh, a problem relating to, to African economies. But I argue there are reasons why we think this problem is particularly large in sub-Saharan Africa. One is that relating to the, the activity and the capacity of, of African states to collect information on its inhabitants. Uh, usually, uh, this kind of, uh, the, the collection of, of you know, uh, having a population census, having a, popera- uh, uh, a population registry, a uh, registry of businesses, it has been related historically across the, the globe through uh, the, the evolution or, or the, the formation of states and also the evolution of tax, taxation systems. In sub-Saharan Africa, Historically, land has been more abundant. Taxes have not been collected uh, on private property to the extent it has been elsewhere. And that's meant that states have been more typically collecting information and taxes at borders, at at ports. So that Frederick Cooper uh, talks about uh, African states as gatekeeper states. And this means that these the the states in Africa on average have have less information about what goes on in their and less uh, information about what goes on in their domestic economy, but also less incentive to to collect that information. Um, and this is uh, not, that's one type of more static structural characteristic. The other one which I point out is as well is that. African economies was subject to a much uh, deeper economic recession or at least a a, a more uh, heavier uh, economic shock in the 1980s. So when, of course, the petroleum crisis and uh, the interest rate rate hikes uh, which followed in the 1980s, which led to economic crisis in Latin America as well, um, and, and stagnation across in the, in the world economy was hitting African economies particularly hard. And it also hit them, it hit already weak states particularly hard so, so that budgets which were, uh, which were allocating funds for statistical offices were particularly constrained. Moreover, it also, uh, there was this double challenge in that states on average before 1980s in Africa were more engaged in in uh, organizing the the organized directly involved in production they were also directly involved in transportation of goods they were uh, engaged in buying and selling of food products through their marketing boards and basically uh, before in the 60s and the 70s African states had more uh, uh, what we call administrative data data which they collected on their day-to-day basis. Post-1980, post-structural adjustment, these states have increasingly been liberalized and therefore have access to less administrative data and also have less incentive to collect this kind of information. So basically, one of the things that's going on is that the size of the unmeasured sector is changing radically over this time period. So you can't just sort of assume, as I think most people do about the United States, which would also be false, by the way, mm-hmm. that, oh, well, we don't count household production. We don't count the meals that a, a husband or wife cook for the family. But that's okay because it's kind of constant. 
But of course, there have been radical changes in household production in the United States over the last 40 or 50 years. Uh, year to year, the changes are small. Decade to decade, the changes are big, even in the United States, yeah. certainly in Africa, uh, they're enormous. So I, the other part I, I'd like you to talk about is that the attempt to try to measure these unmeasurable sectors using proxies like rainfall or cement production, I found that tragicomic. I, it's, it's unbelievable that that's what people are doing to try to mm. estimate GDP. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So let's return to you know what I started to describe at the beginning um, about how, why there are problems of, of when you start aggregating GDP. So if you are a, a national accountant and your task is to aggregate GDP, you find yourself having some some problems uh, reaching the the total sum. Uh, for those who are, there might be readers who are not that familiar with national accounting, so it might be just worthwhile going through the different ways of arriving at GDP. I would say um, I would say very few of our listeners are familiar <laughs> with it. So yeah, talk talk about that a little bit. How, how would you? I mean, it, in theory, it's pretty straightforward. You just you just take the dollar value of everything people make and sell. It's straightforward. Yeah, goods and services. Just add them all up. That's right. That's right. So, uh, so that's that's the theory behind it. When it actually goes on in practice, it gets a bit more complicated. The system of national accounts, as it was designed by uh, Richard Stone and then later approved by the OECD and, and different committees about how to do things. The United Nations have published three versions of the of the system of national accounts uh, uh, about how this should be done according to an international standard. And the system is that you should reach GDP in three ways independently. So that you have, so what you say, uh, there is, uh, it's just about uh, adding up what uh, people produce or consume uh, and then get a sum more systematically. That means um, there is the expenditure approach, which is the standard Keynesian identity that GDP equals consumption plus investment uh, and plus uh, government and then plus minus uh, uh, export and imports. So that should seem pretty straightforward. You just need to have the data on what the government does. You need to have some data of, of capital formation, investment. You have uh, uh, exports, you have imports, but then you come to consumption, which is the big unknown, which means, uh, which in the absence of a, of a uh, fairly accurate and reliable household budget survey, you simply do not know that share. So in practice, consumption is always res uh, 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 arrived at as a residual. So this approach does not uh, give the, have the information, you don't have the information in a statistical office in sub-Saharan Africa to arrive at this measure independently. Uh, the other approach which used to, which is, you know, a little bit out of fashion, is that of uh, deriving from political economy, uh, that of added together wages, wages, uh, profits, and, and rents, which would be the, the, the old way of thinking that everyone, GDP equals what everyone earns in the end. So it's just about the receipts of GDP. That would be the income approach. Because again, large part of the economy do not really receive a, a formal wage, but are rather small-scale independent operators who have a very unpredictable wage earning and you know pays themselves a wage when they can. And barter uh, is barter. Yeah, yeah, different ways of of getting by. Um, even if you had data on this, it would be recall data, and it would be uh, difficult to to compute. Um, so usually that this is also not, uh, this statistic is not, this approach to GDP is not, not uh, calculated. What you do have is that of the production approach, which means basically you go through the familiar industrial tables where you have agriculture at the top, then you have mining, you have manufacturing, you have electricity and water, um, uh, construction, and then you reach the different service sectors such as uh, retail, wholesale, transportation, hotels, restaurants. And then you arrive at the government, their expenditures on, on different types of services, administration, uh, defense, education and health services. And then the big voluntary uh, social services category where you would put 
NGOs and churches and so forth at the end of the table. Now, so then you, that's the way in which uh, GDP is arrived at, is to try to go through this table and do the best you can per, per sector. So where does it and get that, tough? <laughs> it does get tough already in the first category <laughs> because uh, in the agricultural sector, you have very good data or quite good get data on how much agricultural goods are exported. And that's because they go out through a port where people are trying to measure them for government purposes so that we have some, of course, they're smuggling, but put that to the side. We have some idea of exports. That's right. So, so this, and there has been an incentive from colonial times to collect this data accurately, particularly when it was taxed. To take one example, uh, in Uganda, uh, which is a landlocked economy, for those who do not know, uh, behind it, you know, it's at Lake Victoria behind Kenya and Tanzania uh, in the, in the, uh, at the equator in, uh, in Central Africa, Central East Africa. Uganda collected their trade statistics in Mombasa, which is the port town in Kenya. <coughs> so that would be a, a classic example of how the, the knowledge of the state was, uh, was limited to, to particularly the, the port and, and, and the trade statistics. Um, as I've, uh, so you have, you have fairly good uh, statistics there, but you don't have statistics on, on the full production. So there you will have to use a proxy. Typically, what uh, uh, statistical offices did in the 1960s when they started to aggregate these estimates was to rely on advice from the Food and Agricultural Organization in Rome, FAO, uh, about what would be the reasonable per capita uh, estimate for, 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 for a country in their income bracket, and then simply multiply that with their estimate of the rural population and rural population growth. So that's kind of horrifying because you're kind yes. of assuming your answer. You're trying to figure out how much income people have. So you, you, you start by assuming what it is and then attributing some calorie consumption amount to that and then adding it to another thing you can't estimate very well, which is population. That's right. Bad. It's bad practice. It is done in order to reach the total sum, you know, to have the GDP aggregate. The problem becomes when people use these series in order to, to uh, econometrically estimate other results. Yeah, I'm reminded, sorry to tell another joke, but I'm reminded of the guy who's Someone gives him $100 in $1 bills. So he's counting to see whether he actually gave him $100. He gets you know, 53, 54, 60, 65, 70, 73, 74. And he says, well, if it's right this far, it's probably right the rest of the way. And so, you know, it's kind of like, well, I, I estimated some of this stuff correctly. I'll just kind of just get up to the total without, I mean, the whole, it's bizarre. But let, let's, there are three main data series that econometricians use. Uh, the estimates of Angus Madison, the World Development Institute, and the Penn World Tables. I've seen all these data many, many times myself. It's not my area. Yeah. But, but I was shocked to see them all in one place uh, because what you usually see is somebody say, well, I've used the Penn World Tables for my analysis. And I think, well, that's a reliable source. Then you see that they don't agree so much. And we're not talking about, well, they're off by 1% or 2%. They're big differences. No, it's, it's, uh, when I did this exercise myself, I was quite surprised, I must say. Um, and it, it came about to me as a, as a thought experiment, you know, listening to particularly these papers where someone found that some type, type, a type of historical variable, such as type of colonization, uh, the engagement in slave trade, uh, legal institutions at independence, was causally related to GDP per capita. Yeah, uh, I've seen that. Today, t today, you know, there are f sure. famous papers about how history matters for development, yep. basically. But that means you have to kind of trust the, the income distribution of African economies today. So you have to kind of think that, okay, so, uh, you know, that uh, those economies that are poor today or among the 10 poorest are also among the 10 poorest, you know, give or take a couple of years and also across data sets. And I, I asked someone when I heard one of these papers and I sat in the audience, I said, have you checked whether this is, uh, uh, you know, a robust to using different data sets? 
and uh, they said that they did, but I didn't trust them, so I went home and did the exercise myself. Oh, you're not. You're very <laughs> naughty. Shame, yes. on, shame on you. Yeah. <laughs> you skeptic. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, and what I did, uh, and this, uh, this is part of my book. It's also for readers who are interested. It's also I did an earlier exercise like that was published in the African Affairs in 2010, where basically I took the GDP per capita estimate in year 2000 for all sub-Saharan African economies according to the Madison dataset, according to the World Development uh, Indicator dataset and the Penwell tables, and just, you know, they use slightly different international prices, uh, how they, they harmonize the data and so forth, different uh, calculation behind it. But what I was interested in was simply, how do they rank the African economies? You know, is there a difference in ranking? And what I found is that these data sets for year 2000, they agree, agree upon the ranking of one country and one country alone. And that is uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, which everyone agrees upon is the poorest country in sub-Saharan Africa. Okay. Beyond, <laughs> so we, we but, know something. It's good. Yeah. And then well, maybe. Did, <laughs> anyway, at least they agree. Yeah, they agree upon that. Um, it's also widely agreed upon that, you know, that's probably the GDP estimate, which has, you know, is the that uh, GDP, which is the most poorly estimated in all of sub-Saharan Africa as well, showing that if you have little data, you also tend to produce an underestimate. Um, and, but then I looked through the rest of the, well, I ended up with 45 countries because not all of these data sets have countries for the same data, same countries such as Madison, groups Eritrea and Ethiopia as one country and so forth like that. So I ended up with 45 countries and for the remaining, for, remaining 44, they did not agree on the ranking of any of these countries. And, more, and this was not the, uh, the ranking being off with the one or two spots. It was, uh, it was uh, serious things such as the Penwell tables thought that Liberia was the second poorest country in, in sub-Saharan Africa. Whereas uh, Madison thought it was among the 10 richest. Uh, slight difference. Other, slight difference. Uh, and other countries such as Nigeria, uh, Guinea, uh, uh, um, um, Mozambique, other countries travel a lot. And in fact, uh, the average, the standard deviation in ranking, if I co uh, recollect this correctly, was seven, uh, seven ranks uh, up and down. And, and my basic exercise from that was to, you know, uh, to drive that. Basically, when we are looking at these rankings of GDP per capita, um, we should approach this, well, when I, in 2010, I, I thought, you know, give or take 30% would be the, the correct reliability as, uh, band. Uh, today, um, it's been shown by the the recent uh, GDP revision in Ghana that we are, might be thinking plus or or, or minus 50, 75% on this. And this means that for all practical purposes, all those kind of econometric estimations are meaningless. Yeah, and totally, totally yeah. meaningless. It's, yeah, it, it's, it's, uh, it, it does, and that, that does not even, I mean, we should, I should make this point. I mean, most criticism of the use of the GDP estimates is about, you know, GDP is not the correct measure. We should be looking at other things. We should be looking at literacy and so forth like this. My critique is that, fine, yeah, there might be problems with the GDP estimate, but exactly how good is this particular data is, is the subject of this, this book. And uh, I show that there is something wrong with, with, with the, the metric itself, not only that it does not capture the right things. But so one of the things you, that if you ask me for uh, to, to give a stylized fact about world development over the last 20 years, sort of what's the consensus? I would have said the consensus is there's been tremendous growth over the last 20 years, mm. particularly in a lot of it's in China and India, which is yep. somewhat misleading because they're very large. So they can pull up the average. But the, the world overall is there, there are many, many fewer people living at less than a dollar a day, less than $2 a day. And again, you can broadly say this is due to liberalization. Both China and India have opened their countries to more market-based forces. So this confirms my biases, I have to confess. Yep. So I like that. That's, oh, yeah. And then I say, well, but 
people say, but the one continent, the one part of the world that hasn't participated in growth is Africa. Africa has been stagnant over the last 20 years. And then you say, well, well, that's because they have bad institutions. They have bad, they don't have rule of law. They, they, there's a lot of corruption. They don't trade much. There's a lot of, of protectionism. But mm. what you're suggesting is that, I'm going to go a little further maybe than you want to when you correct mm. me, but what you're suggesting is that actually Africa might be doing pretty well. It's, it's very hard to know. But because mm. we have so much aid going to Africa out of the total amount of aid from the United States, from the World Bank, from the IMF, from Europe, that it's in the incentive, it's in the interest of African leaders to look stagnant and to look poor. And maybe they aren't. Mm, I wouldn't go as I, I think, think I you would, would, but go ahead. No. <laughs> Give me a reaction. Yeah, no, I wouldn't go as I, I. I think I almost agree with you until uh, the last sentence. So I wouldn't go as far as let's let's talk about those other things and then let's talk about incentives for political leaders um, at the, at the very end, um, because I think there is there is some interesting when you start looking upon the history about because what we're talking about here is basically to reconcile time series data. So how did African economies, you know, looking at si singular economies, but also on the, on the regional basis, how have they performed over the past two decades? How did they perform over these past two decades as compared to the three decades before that? That's the kind of debates we, right. we're thinking about. And, which, and which time periods were they lagging behind Asia? Which periods were they lagging behind Latin America? When were they ahead? when they, they perform better and so forth. And I think there's a couple of striking things coming out of that. Um, and one is that I do in the uh, one example I would like to pull out is one when, in which relates to what we said about proxies earlier uh, in the conversation. And I would like to emphasize it to tell a little bit about this, how GDP growth has been estimated in, in Tanzania. Where, yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> because that's Tanzania is, you know, uh, not it's it's an interesting country because it's you know it's been fairly well governed and so forth. But it's also special in that it was a country from independence, particularly from the uh, late sixties into the seventies, was also you know grouped under what we call African uh, socialism. Uh, so it was a socialist country in which uh, in which uh, uh, the, the state was uh, heavily involved in in large part of the economy, also uh, uh, trading, uh, transporting goods, and so forth. Um, and until the 1980s, the GDP estimates were made. Actually, until the 1990s, the GDP series was made to assume that if the formal economy, that is the recorded economy, was in decline so was the informal economy. So that was a, an assumption of proportionality. Yeah. So uh, that if, if food production as recorded went down, then we also think that food production not recorded also went down. When the World Bank and uh, technical advisors went in in the 1990s to rebase the GDP series, they made the opposite assumption. They then changed the assumption about how to use the proxies and then assumed that when the formal economy was in decline, then the informal or the unrecorded economy would be growing. Now could this, be true. Both those things could be true. Absolutely. Right? But, we don't know which one it is or both over different periods of time, but it is both those are imaginably true that there's either that they move in tandem or they move in opposite directions because of crowding out and yeah. Absolutely. And, it, and it's exactly what's the answer to that question is maybe the question which you know, has attracted the most interest in development economics, you know. Uh, this is related to how to interpret went-first surplus models, the classic uh, Smithian models about what happens to the rest of the economy when there is an observable export growth, uh, what happens, you know, when there is unlimited supply of labor, how does the other unrecorded sector... So, so far, these are big academic scholarly questions, if you like. But at this very, what's very interesting about this case is that this question was settled at the statistical office and it was settled differently before and after 1987. 
if you start looking uh, start looking at the G- the resulting GDP series, what suddenly happened when uh, 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 when they rebased the series was a suddenly recovery of growth when they they changed the assumptions. So that means uh, that we must take care when we try to th- think about uh, to what extent have. Um, so the, the question, which I, the, what I put forward is in the, the, in the case of Tanzania, for instance, the extent of economic decline was overestimated in the 1980s. And the corollary would be that economic growth recovery in the 1990s following liberalization was overestimated. So that means to the extent that we can generalize from the Tanzan- Tanzanian case, um, and I think one has to be careful about looking at country per country basis here. Uh, we might be very careful about celebrating and applauding the recent growth we're seeing in sub-Saharan Africa. A second point, which is interesting to make when it comes to, uh, you know, uh, the literature on African, uh, African economic growth uh, is not, not only have they ignored the problems of the GDP series, but they've also been perhaps a bit too pessimistic, as you, as you allude to. Um, one interesting thing is that, you know, we know that The Economist had their famous special issue or front page in the year 2000 calling Africa the hopeless continent. That was in the year 2000. Uh, the bestseller, uh, perhaps, on African economic growth would be The Bottom Billion, yep. I think, by Paul Collier, published in 2007. Interviewed on this program, sure. Yeah, and which is a very interesting book, but it is perhaps surprising to look back at that and look at the GDP series, which tells you that African economies have been growing very rapidly, indeed as quickly as other places in the world, since the mid-1990s, and somehow it took economists a decade and a half to notice it. Yeah. Which is, it's, it's, it's you know, and meanwhile, I think there is a, what happened in the, in the, but that's a separate argument, which I don't make in this book, which I met, made elsewhere, is that I think that to some extent, the governance deficit, if you like, in sub-Saharan Africa has been uh, overemphasized. And we have been very, very good at, well, r- right now, economists and political scientists are very good at explaining why African economies are not growing. Well, in fact, they are, which is a, an interesting knowledge problem. Yeah. Fascinating. Uh, but there is also, you know, relating again, you know, how much should we trust these measures? I think a lot of the record high growth coming out, for instance, such as in Ghana now and Nigeria to come, should be taken with, with a serious, you know, uh, with a small bucket of salt because a lot of this sudden growth is coming by including previously unrecorded economy. Right, so you really have no idea. You really, you don't. Have, yeah. The bottom line is, you don't have a benchmark that's, that's right. reliable, and so as a result, your your rates of change are not reliable. As you mm. say, if, if your method, another way to say it is, if your methodology is changing, um, it's you can't really compare the past to the future yeah. of the present. And then, and then, uh, so it should also. I mean, some of the basic. Uh, uh, caveats with, with regards to interpreting African economic growth needs to be taken as well, not only those related to statistics, but I mean, I think the World Economic Outlook just published their uh, projections. Uh, and in there you see that, well, I can ask you, what, what do you think it was the, is projected to be the fastest growing economy next year, uh, Russ? In the world? In the world. China? No, <laughs> Southern Sudan. Of course. Why? By Why? Six, they will, uh, their GDP growth rate next year is projected to be 60%. Ah, it's quite a good, it's a good year. Yeah. Then the next follow-up question is, which do you think was the slowest growing economy this year in the world? Uh, Ireland. Greece. No, it was Southern Sudan again. <laughs> It, it, if I get, if I remember this correctly, their economy contracted by about fifty percent this year. Well, thank goodness it was only a one-year contraction. Yeah. It's going to bounce it, right back. For Southern Sudan, this is about whether they're allowed to turn on the the pipeline with oil or not. By uh-huh. of course. So, I mean, here is where sometimes petroleum export growth and so forth 
matters more than statistics. So, I mean, one of the things that, that drives recent economic growth in sub-Saharan Africa is the undisputable uh, uh, rise in exports. Uh, how that relates to economic growth in the domestic economy and on the African continent is a question we are very, very poorly equipped sure. to answer because of the measurements problems. That's, that's so, what I wanted so, to So, I mean, I, you're kind of preaching to the choir here because as longtime listeners know, I'm very skeptical about I'm skeptical about econometric analysis for different reasons than we've talked about today. I'm skeptical because sometimes aggregation is, I think, uh, has methodological problems or there are too many things we can't measure that we need to measure. Uh, I think uh, I think you quote Einstein. What is it? Not everything that counts that can be measured. Not everything we can measure counts. And so I think a lot of times econometricians and economists doing applied statistical work are just, you know, they take whatever they got and they throw it in a big, into a data set and they see what, what's correlated with whatever else is in there and then they find a story to tell and there's a lot of ex post storytelling. But this is, a, you're a, this is a whole new level, right? You're basically saying that we really, um, we're really fooling ourselves. And so the next, you know, we've got a little time left. What, what, the, the obvious question is, well, what do we do? What do we do now? Um, and I'm reminded of the story of that Nassim Taleb tells, which I which I love, which is, um, you know, a bunch of people are lost. They're trying to drive from, this is not the way he tells it, but it's the same point. They're trying to drive from Washington to D.C. to New York, and they're struggling. They're lost. They're off the main road. And finally, one of them says, oh, good good news. I just found a map. And oh, thank goodness, a map. Uh, unfortunately, it's a map of Paris. But <laughs> but but somebody says, well, that's okay. Some map is better than no map. And <laughs> and that's a common argument you hear. Um, no, it's better to have flawed numbers than no. I mean, if you don't have any numbers, you can't say anything. Mm-hmm. But I would argue it's better to say something that's true than something that is unknowably true or maybe false. Um, what do you think? Where do you think this leaves us? In other words. What do we know, if anything, that's mm. reliable? And um, what might be done, you talk about this in the book, to make it better? Yeah, no, I think that's, that's a very fair question. And I, think, and I think it also, the answer depends very much who I'm talking to. Um, one is those which are, uh, you know, academics and, and, and scholars. How should they proceed when they conduct their, their, their next analysis? How can they be immune to these kind of measurement problems, if you like. Um, another thing is, so that would be the data users, which there are expert users, but there is also less expert users, such as, you know, uh, headlines in, in, you know, uh, announcing this and that about uh, economic growth in, in sub-Saharan Africa or, or elsewhere. Um, but there is also uh, that group of uh, the what to what to do now uh, question should also be addressed when it comes to uh, the data dissem- disseminators. That means, for instance, then the World Bank, who is the the big data bank uh, and and publishing this data. What should they do in order to inform their data users? And I think it's also important not to forget, which I try to win. My main reason for writing this is not only to inform data users, but also to, to map out a way in which this problem can be remedied in, for those economies which we're talking about. So that means actually a state's ability to have some, you know, the word statistics, uh, you know, refers to, to the state uh, having a valid GDP measure is basically state knowing something about themselves. So I, I think... There is some uh, important uh, questions uh, regarding um, data production on the national level as well. So let me let me begin with with data users. I think data users. Uh, I hope after they read this book or heard this podcast that they will not take a GDP ranking according to uh, GDP per capita ranking of African economies uh, seriously anymore and start questioning. The fact of the matter is that we, to compare GDP per capita as uh, the official estimates you can download from the World Bank, from Ghana and that of Nigeria today, is completely meaningless. 
uh, and the data will change for Nigeria next year quite a bit. Um, so that means that's a direct uh, uh, implication there. The other is if you if you run if you run uh, your regressions, if you're so inclined, then you have to take these kind of error margins seriously and start thinking about using other physical data with, where you have, you know, uh, export volumes and so forth to try to think about, am I actually doing the right thing here? Um, it's also, it's an interesting thing, which I talk a little bit about in the book as well, that there has been a change in uh, how data users inform themselves. I think development economists in the past tended to be much more writing uh, country books and monographs about countries being an expert on an area and so forth, while there been a trend, particularly in the 1990s and still with us, although a lot of this is going into the randomized evaluations type of literature, there's still more economists now relying on cross-country regressions than there used to be because of obvious reasons. Um, what, and then wait, 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 wait. what are those obvious reasons? Well, there's obvious reasons. Is one of them is the availability of a computer. Yeah. Okay. Good. That's but, uh, scary. <laughs> yeah. And and the other obvious reason is, or actually one of the main reasons is the very availability of these data sets which I am discussing. Yeah. So when these things have been downloadable, downloadable on on the fingertips, it's been easier to do research on causes of economic development from your from your uh, office. Yeah. Which means that mistakes will be made, such as so that people do make mistakes when they analyze growth recovery in Tanzania because they don't know uh, the changes in the underlying data series. So that means simply means that scholarly users needs to take one extra effort and actually do like historians do, uh, and that means you know what's the source of this evidence, what's the provenance, how good is this data, how did it come about, and so forth. Do some serious source criticism. Uh, when it comes to dissemination of data, as I talked about, these are interlinked processes. Uh, but let's let's think about the world development indicators, for instance, uh, where you can download, uh, you know, um, all of these data, or you you look at the Millennium Development uh, Goal reports, where you have these big data sheets which are just filled out. Uh, and you have data on all the economies, and they seeming to be one observation is comparable with the other. I think there is time for for these uh, for World Bank and other data disseminators to start labeling their product uh, correctly. That means that they should there should be a double star on those data which are actually not data but are just projections, uh, and there should be a, a project product declaration which tells tells you that. Actually, in Ghana, they just revised their GDP series, so their level estimate is probably quite reliable. Whereas that GDP estimate, which we here published side by side for Nigeria, has not been revised since the year 1990 and is probably off with about 100%. Uh, so that means more metadata or information about the data. When it comes to actually doing something about it, then we need to make a shift again to, to start realizing that this is about national statistical offices in different capitals and, and regions uh, in sub-Saharan Africa. And you've spent time there, by the way. You're, you, although yeah, you do spend time in your office, uh, <laughs> and you probably have a computer, uh, you yes. also have, uh, you talk in the book about, you ask people in these offices that were often run down and bedraggled and beat up, and I think derelict was one word you used. Yeah. Uh, you've asked them, um, what's going on here? And they often bravely do the best they can to defend their work, but often they confess to you that a lot of what they were doing is not very reliable. Yeah. And uh, so you've gotten your hands dirty in some sense in, in the field. Yeah, I, sh I should, I should uh, we didn't touch upon that, but I should emphasize that this book is the result, the culminating result of, of work I've, done by uh, conducting interviews and collecting data information about GDP estimation in sub-Saharan Africa since 2007. And I have visited, uh, particularly the research is based on visits to Accra, Ghana, uh, Abuja, Nigeria, uh, Kampala, Uganda, Nairobi, in Kenya, Dar es Salaam, in Tanzania, uh, Lilongwe in, in Malawi, and also in Lusaka, Zambia, and Gabaron 
in in uh, Botswana. And I, I, I just going to mention, good luck in the highlights there. We'll do the best we can to get those spelled correctly. Keep go ahead, carry on. <laughs> and uh, and uh, we have I've also uh, uh, conducted a a survey wide uh, telephone and and uh, and email interview with the, the statistical officers. And why my emphasis has been to be on the side of, of, you know, to try to figure out what are the challenges being faced by the local statistical office. And I think that that's also something that happened, uh, and that's part of a historical explanation, is that, you know, from the provisions of the United Nations Statistical uh, Office and the, the legal provisions therein, uh, it was, there's, you, there's, this is uh, data that the GDP estimates, among other data, was supposed to be submitted annually to the United Nations, and then they would submit it uh, and disseminate it through their bodies. So it was state data. Uh, at some point in the 70s, African economies, among others, were getting more and more delayed and were not able to provide these statistics because of the problems we talked about earlier in the show. And... And uh, gradually, World Bank and IMF started producing their own data to the extent that, you know, when I give this paper and present my work, people are surprised that these GDP data are actually national statistical data. You know, they wouldn't trust this data if they knew they were collected there. They somehow the brand name IMF for the World Bank is better. But so my book is, is an effort to try to think about that when you are quoting a GDP statistic, on on uh, Democratic Republic of Congo uh, and Kinshasa, then you are actually making a statement about how reliable you think data coming from that office is, and that means we need to to think about how we can strengthen those offices that are in in need of of support, um, which is a, a considerable challenge, which which I write a lot about in my book, but maybe we don't have time to to. Uh, uh, yeah, talk fully about here today. Right, we only have a few minutes, but I just want to add, I, you know, it has crossed my mind at various times because I, I am not any longer much of an empirical economist. In in my youth, I ran regressions uh, like all good economists. Um, <laughs> I, I learned how to use a data package. Yeah. Uh, but as I've gotten older, I've gotten um, more interested in what I think of as narrative economics, try to try to help people understand how the world works and less concerned about how to measure with any precision, the connections between things. I think it's enough just to show people that there are connections, since most mm. people miss those anyway. Yeah. But having said that, so again, I'm not a consumer of that or producer of those data, but you know, in the United States, we're talking about Africa, but the United States, I view a lot of data that get produced by the government as being misleading or often, quote, wrong. Uh, I think the data on inequality, which is household-based, is distorted by demographic change. The GDP numbers, you know, they're probably, they're in the ballpark, as you say. Their the errors are probably in the 1% to 3% range, which most years, that's they're probably similar, so it's probably not so bad. But, it, you know, it's funny, you talk about the asterisks. And this, mm. The Congressional Budget Office has estimated that uh, the stimulus package, at one point they estimated that the stimulus package of 2009 had created anything, anywhere between 500,000 and 3 million jobs. <laughs> um, yeah. Now... At least they gave the range, yeah. right? They, they didn't just give us the number, but they should have had an asterisk to say that this was not an estimate of the actual number of jobs created the way the average human being would estimate it. They mm -hmm. had run a set of regressions and, you, and basically done a set of projections based on the amount of money being spent by the stimulus package and holding constant the impact of dollars of government spending on employment that it held in the past Mm. which weren't the structural system that we were currently operating under. And how you can call that a measure of the effect of the stimulus is beyond me. Yet many, many, many mainstream economists will all, will quote the CBO as showing that a nonpartisan congressional mm. budget office found the stimulus worked. Well, yep. they didn't. They didn't do the mm. analysis. And they yep. confess it. They say so. They even say when they report those estimates, they, they don't put an asterisk, but they do have a paragraph, if you find it, that says... These don't look at actual data that occurred after the stimulus was passed, but rather looks at data that was before and then projects it forward as if that were the impact. And mm. that's intellectually bankrupt as far as I'm concerned. So yeah. you could argue, and I'll let you close on this, you could argue that you don't want to really want to improve these numbers. Mm -hmm. It's um, inherently always going to be 
politicized, misinterpreted. And even when you're trying to do the kind of analysis you're talking about, which is comparing, say, structural changes and their impact, so many other things are changing, you're, you're going to end up doing something that's probably not so reliable anyway. So tell me why we ought to be worried about this. Tell me why we ought to fix it. And I'll let you, I've been the, the, the uh, cynic, so you, you can close on a, a more uplifting note. Yeah, I'll I'll do my best to, to answer to that challenge. And you can and you can bring in what you what you didn't answer before when I said that that there was this incentive of leaders to distort the numbers downward because they want to keep collecting the money. So you're going to have to answer that too because that's part of the problem. Even if they have the better statistical office in in societies where trust and rule of law are not so established, they're going to be distorted maybe anyway. Even after you improve those offices. Mm. I think it's important that we first clarify, as you suggested, the political incentive to tamper with numbers. Um, And I think what we've seen, for instance, with the upward revision in in Ghana and the forthcoming and pending upward revision in Nigeria, which do take these countries into middle-income poor country status, uh, as was part of their political leaders' promises, actually in Ghana, they delivered on their promise three years ahead of schedule, which is quite something. Uh, and they will now, uh, Nigeria as well, will probably become a bigger economy than South Africa and therefore have more sway, for instance, to negotiate for a, you know, a, a seat in different UN uh, legislative bodies or, or, or others. And then, but... I think that um, when it comes to so there is there is um, some leaders do want to show some evidence about doing better, and then some of them have increasingly turned their way their head to the statistical office and say, "Hey, maybe we're not estimating GDP correctly. Maybe we can get a different type of estimate if we update the the, the data series, which is what will happen now in Nigeria. And Nigeria will become much richer than we thought it was. Um, I think it. The relationship of the incentive there should not be interpreted that directly the other way around so that there are leaders who uh, on purpose let their country look poorer or more stagnant than it should be and therefore don't, uh, um, don't update their statistics. I think those leaders who are not really uh, interested in, in, in uh, economic growth per se is not really interested in GDP statistics either. Fair so they, <laughs> so, Good point. <laughs> so they, it just doesn't enter the calculus. Um, but I think there are uh, other... Th- then I think on these... Then yeah, GDP, I should emphasize as well, is for me just uh, an analytical angle and window in to looking at the statistical systems in these countries. Um, and it is important because it is the sum of all the activities of the statistical office and also the most widely used indicator for economic development. But under them... Underlying this this data is all, as we talked about, different sectoral estimates, having a population census, being able to say whether inflation is at 10% or 120%. Those kind of statistics is also needed in order to, to reach that final aggregate. And there are other, uh, other places where this, this does apply, particularly in food production. Uh, we know very well that uh, governments have been uh, likely to well, have some incentive to to overstate uh, the the type of of, of food uh, shortfall in order to qualify for 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 uh, financial aid, and also when financial aid is forthcoming, at this, for instance, has been in uh, I dis- discussed the case of Malawi in the book, where Malawi for some years now have been overstating uh, food production very very seriously. Uh, in order to say, hey, keep on giving us in, uh, funds in order to subsidize um, maize, uh, corn f- fert- uh, fertilizers for, for maize production because they're really, really working right. to the extent that uh, Malawi at this po- moment should either, either Malawians should be gaining weight quite rapidly or they should be exporting a lot of maize, but neither is happening. So the statistics must be wrong. Um, but that's, so that, so I think... Those numbers do matter, uh, and there are incentives to tamper with them each way. And that's so it's important to be aware of this problem so that we don't, as you talked about in, in, uh, from the U- US situation, 
treat these numbers as facts just because they are published by an official body. So that means that uh, uh, you know, just not using the numbers that are convenient, but try to to take it, uh, try to analyze what's behind them. That being said, I think there is a case for really uh, um, working towards finding a strategy to which we can have get better numbers and better data uh, for African economies. And that, that means that I said we have to reshift our focus to realizing that these are not data that are collected in Washington, D.C. They're actually collected in the countryside in Tanzania, in the countryside in Ghana uh, or, or elsewhere. And that's where we need to think about what is needed. Um, there is, has been a tendency, as I talked about, towards the agenda in development being determined on a global basis and therefore also the data collection agent agendas are also being collected in been determined as a that the statistical offices just have to kind of fill in the gaps in the global data sheet rather than being able to determine what is their own statistical priority so that means it's quite interesting to see that most leaders going to uh, elections, for instance, Yadja uh, Kikwete in Tanzania two years ago, went, uh, you know, went for uh, in the uh, election campaign, um, uh, trying to to be elected on the basis of that he promised to improve employment. And it's an interesting case that there has not been a labor survey in Tanzania for a for a very very long time in the 1980s, as far as I know, and there is simply no no measure whether, you know, what extent is the unemployment number. And there is no way of saying to Jerje Kikwete, you know, uh, unemployment went up or down or so forth when he's going to face re-election and down the road. So that means the, the point I'm making is that at least, Ross, you have some numbers to quibble with. And there is a debate about the CPI, the unemployment, the employment effects, there is a debate about to what extent is the, 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 the performance indicators on the U.S. economy capturing GDP growth. There is a debate about whether inequality is correctly measured or not. But in many of these countries, the statistical priority is not determined within the country. It is very often determined from outside donors providing ad hoc funding for particular projects needing to prove their policies elsewhere. And therefore, data not being collected for the state itself and therefore not fostering uh, that kind of debate, which, you know, um, which is a, a public, uh, creating a public record in which trust and distrust is exchanged and, uh, and there is a political debate about, uh, you know, whether politicians are doing what they promised, whether projects are delivering what they promised and, and therefore uh, um, fostering uh, uh, that type of, of, uh, of uh, political systems, uh, which we refer to as accountable, uh, where there is accountability, good governance, and so forth. And I think the statistical office have sadly been neglected, uh, severely neglected, I should say, uh, when it comes to developing uh, agendas for better accountability and better governance in the future for African economies. So I think that's uh, what my book hopes to reignite. My guest today has been Morton Shervin. Morton, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you very much. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.